and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are talking about Blue Lily, Lily Blue, chapters 1 through 25. This is book three of The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. Today we are very excited to have a guest with us for the first time in our Raven Cycle series. Jenna, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jenna. (laughs) Hi. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for joining us. Jenna and I are, I guess, if Tasia and I are like internet friends turn real friends, Jenna and I are in real life friends. Who also work together. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. Probably real life friends turned also internet friends. Right. uh, In our obsession over specifically YA fantasy. Correct. So, and I think I mentioned this previously, you wrote in for our King of Scars episode, like theorizing that how this chain works is that Tasia recommends books to me and then I recommend books to Jenna. And so (laughs) this is like a very lovely full circle moment when you two are finally together in the same space. I very much enjoy it. And this is really fun to talk about this series with you, Jenna, because when I read these books, I immediately after reading book one was like, walked over to your office like Jenna you must read this with me and I just have fond memories of many times while I was reading this just coming and instead of working sitting in your office and talking about this series so I will say that probably right before quarantine started I found the post-it note that I had written the Raven Boys on oh cute. after you recommended it to me I think I saved it I don't know oh I love that that makes me happy no I do remember like running and being like I I think you will like this. You did. And here we are. And we specifically wanted you to come here today when we were talking about which episode to have you on. This one seems like a good one because you and I both have a very strong affinity for one <laughs> no journey. You can't see her, but she just <laughs> lost it a little bit. So that's great. We're going to be really calm, cool, and collected as we always are on this podcast here today. But before we dive in, and we always like to start off with other things that we're into and obsessing over this week. Uh, Jenna, as our guest, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. So I am starting my first time reading the Throne of Glass series. Uh, I've already read A Court of Thorns and Roses, Akatar, as it's called, and I'm loving it. I'm excited. I'm gearing up for like the new release of the new Akatar uh, universe book, but Throne of Glass, crazy, man. It is. It's a very long series. You made me read Akatar, I feel, and now I made you read Throne of Glass. So again, full circle. It's nice that that is working out. And there's a lot to obsess over with that one because it's what, eight books? Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's long and I refuse internet people to hear any kale slander. I refuse it. I won't listen to it. Yeah, he's a very controversial figure, but I'm on your side too. He is, I like him. As in all of her books, she has like one guy that is, is he good? Is he bad? I like him. Who knows? Tejo, what are you into this week? I mean, just like last week, I haven't really <laughs> had time to do anything beyond school and the the podcast reading. I still haven't finished The Roommate, which I was in, it's still in the oh, middle yeah. of last week. The only thing I did do, I finished uh, Crash Landing on You finally, which was, you know, uh, sobbing myself to sleep night. So that was fun. And so then I watched it and also, <laughs> and also cried. It makes me feel better yeah, about myself. Just, just embarrassingly. And then I also... Just started the Americans last night, which hooked me pretty quick. So yeah, that is a good one. I actually never finished it, which is bad. I was like watching in real time and then I just stopped. I had like twelve on my DVR and gave up. But 
Get back one day. That's a good one though. They're both so hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they have really good chemistry. Obviously they're together in real life. So mm-hmm. that's very fun. I this week didn't have much time to do much else besides the podcast reading. I had a pretty busy week, but then just over this weekend, I have read not one, but two books in the Rules of Scoundrel series by Sarah Mc- McLean. Is that how we say it? Uh, which so. is a recommendation from um, independently got from, from Jenna and also from Friend of the Pod, Aubrey. Given this new world I'm finding myself into of historical romances that was not super into before, but Bridgerton has just like blown the door wide open on me being interested in it. It's a very fun series that takes place in like a gambling hall in in London. And so it's a little like edgier, a little uh, seedier than, for instance, the Bridgerton books, which are very familial based. And I don't want to say more PG because they are romances, but they feel more PG in a lot of ways. But this writing is really sharp. The characters are much deeper, I feel, than in the Bridgerton series. And yeah, I was just chatting with Jenna before we got on that I was up to like 1230 last night crying over one of them. So healthy, (laughs) normal behaviors I'm engaged in. I will say, and I want to give this warning to any listeners who might be reading this series because I'm so mad this happened to me. Book four in the series, I'd been warned by Jenna, by Aubrey, by other people, has a huge twist in it. And I was so excited. I'm like, what twist could a historical romance series have for me? So I was like, I'm not going to read any synopsis and I'm going to look at the fourth book. I don't know what it's called, nothing. So I finished the first book and I, after the last page, I hit the next button on my Kindle to flip to the next page, thinking there might be an author's note or something. What is it? It is a preview of this fourth book in the series. So it goes from one to four and has a paragraph that gives away the entire synopsis and twist of the fourth book. Yeah. How was I to know? I'm so mad about it. I'm so mad. That's outrageous that they would put that there. I'm so mad. Why? I I don't know. It was a good twist. I wouldn't have seen it coming. (laughs) I'm so mad. That's so sad. Yeah. So the first book is available on Kindle for $2 recommend it but when you finish that book stop do not pass go there is one epilogue do not turn the page oh, i'm so mad but anyway i'm still enjoying the series but i i like being surprised and it took that away from me yeah so i'm mad anyway let's get back to <laughs> our our forever obsession with the raven cycle Blue, blue. I have to admit that this book the first time i read it and the first couple times i read it is my least favorite of the series not for and I don't really know why, but every time I read it, I like it more and more. And I'm really excited to talk about it today. I don't know if you guys feel similarly. Yeah, I always mentally rank it like at the bottom, but then while I'm reading it, I'm like, why do I mentally rank this at the bottom? It's hilarious. It's got the introduction of Piper and and Colin Greenmantle, who I love. It's, it's got Jesse Dilly, Jessie who Dilly. I love. It's mm-hmm. there's so much there to love. And I think you said that it's like the funniest of all the books. And it's so agree. funny. Yeah, it, it's so funny. I don't know why I thought that. It's wrong with me. But, oh, well. Yeah. Now now I finally, I'm trying to equate them all. They all can't all be the dream thieves. But this one is, is still really good. and has a lot to, to dive into today. Um, before we get started, we always do start with a quick summary of these chapters. Tasia, take it away. All right. Maura Sargent is missing, having gone underground at the end of the last book. The Foxway psychics learn that there are three sleepers in the caves under caves water, one who should not be awoken. The gang decides to explore these caves, and Gansey nearly dies as he falls in a deep hole in the cave. 
Gansey's old British friend Mallory comes to Henrietta in order to explore Henrietta's lay. Blue struggles with the loss of her mother as well as her continued feelings for Gansey. Adam is still learning to come to terms with himself now that he has made this bargain with Cabeswater. He travels to Ronan's family home, the Barnes, where Ronan shows Adam that he has been what he has been working on. A way to keep dreams awake after the dreamer has fallen asleep, prompted by the fact that he actually dreamed his brother, Math. Gansey is increasingly anxious through these chapters after his near-death experience, wondering what he will do after he finds Glendower. Noah seems to be decaying, often losing control and resorting to scary violence against the others. Blue meets Jesse Ditley, a Henrietta man who guards the entrance to a cave which the gang believes may lead to the blocked cave in Caveswater. Blue recognizes his name, confirming that he was on the list of souls that walked on the ley line on St. Mark's Eve, meaning he will die within the year. She tells the rest of the gang this, but Adam realizes she is hiding something else, ultimately forcing her to reveal that one of them is set to die that year, and that someone is Gansey. Dun, dun, dun. What an end to this chapter segment that we're covering here today. I have to say, I'm like so proud of Adam. Like When I was rereading that, I'm like, you're so smart, Adam Parrish. He is. He really is. Maybe he's that's a very good. impressive person. He really honestly. is. Just thought, of course, it had to be Adam that figures this out, right? Because he had the vision of Gansey dying when he was in the tree. So he's already been like confronted with this idea that one of them could die. And I don't think that has necessarily crossed the minds of anyone else. Really I also think he's like the most naturally suspicious one. So he's the one most primed to like be watching for those little tells. Like when he can, when he can tell that Blue is lying about not having the list or not knowing what's on it. Yeah. He's I, just naturally suspicious. Yeah. I love that. It comes up at one part in that chapter, but it comes up earlier too when it's the first day of school and all the students come into their Latin classroom and it says, Adam kept watching. He was good at this part, the observing of others. And that's really a big part of of who he is, which is really interesting given that he's so wrapped up in so much other stuff as we've talked about at length here. Uh, but I, I really like, I'm surprised looking at my notes. I think I my Adam notes are kind of out of control for this episode, which I, I don't know. Again, maybe the theme of this reread is just me just being all in on Adam, which I'm fine and I'm happy with. But there's so much more here, too, that I don't think I've quite picked up on in other reads of this book. But there is such a natural continuation of his continued growth in this book from where we left off in The Dream Thieves. And I really... I really like to see it. You know, he's thinking more about himself and who he really is than he had previously. The continuation of that quote that I just read kind of highlights that, you know, we've spent a lot of time here talking about why he wants to be this Agumbly boy when he, when he hates them. And he's starting to reckon with that. It was himself he couldn't seem to study or understand how he despised them, how he wanted to be them, how pointless to summer in Maine, how much he wanted to do it, how affected he found their speech, how he coveted their lazy monotones. He couldn't tell how all these things could be equally true. And it's, it's such a good build off of where we were in the last book because he still wants those things. He tells Ronan later, what have I been killing myself for if I, I don't see this through, if I don't graduate from Agnelli and don't remain top of my class. But he's starting to realize that like that's not all there is. He doesn't know who he is yet. He thinks he's unknowable, but he's he's yeah. passing through that. Throughout this book, it's it's kind of the unwinding of that that thought of his that he is unknowable. 
And I thought that was so interesting because you do see Adam kind of getting more comfortable with himself and him getting more comfortable with himself is him being more comfortable with the fact that he doesn't necessarily understand every part of himself and that he is unknowable. Right. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Like he, it's okay to not know who you are when you're 18 years old and you know, he's, it's going to be continued path for him. And he, he, I, every time he says he's unknowable, he, I think he thinks of it as a bad thing, but I don't think it is. It's, it's, it's growth. It's development. He's, and this is why I like to Persephone says this earlier. And this is like, you know, Persephone is very ethereal and kind of out there in a lot of her thinking, but she thinks at one point in the prologue where she looks to Adam and she, you know, she was standing there with the boy and then she goes, no, Adam, she reminded herself. It was so difficult to find birth given names important. And I like that because where Adam's journey goes in this book is him kind of separating this idea of who Adam Parrish, son of Robert Parrish, victim of abuse. He's, he's separating himself away from that. And I think that's a nice way to highlight that at the beginning. doesn't matter who he was. He's not tied to that. Yeah. I think he's starting to identify himself more with like the power and the agency that he's gotten through, through Cape's water. And he's not seeing himself as like this weak thing that needs saving in any way. Like he sees, he sees the light at the end of the tunnel now where he's not really thinking about that, the, the favor from Glendower. He knows he can make it through on his own. Yeah. He, he's so great. And then at, at the end in chapter 25, He's now transitioned. He's going to use his favor to save whoever it is among his friends from their inevitable death. Yeah. Uh, I love it. It's so good. But he he does, though, still think, though, about how he's this separate, this other person. It's good that he's not fighting anymore with Gansey. He's not, you know, he keeps trying to tell himself, don't fight with Gansey. Don't fight with Blue. But he thinks to himself, too, how it was better this way, that he was different since he made the bargain and he performed this ritual over the summer. He thinks it's better this way. But ultimately, I don't, I don't think that that's right. He, he, he needs them still. He thinks it's good that he's pulling away. It's, it's fine. I'm different. It's okay. But yeah. we don't need that for... He doesn't need that. He, he does need them. And I, I love think it. That, yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I think it's totally encapsulated in that scene on the first day of school when they're all coming in that passage that you just read. Um, and there's one part where Gansey comes in and it hits him like a real thing. Like somehow he had stopped being friends with Gansey and forgotten until this moment. And once more, it would just be Adam against all the rest of the overfed predators. Like there's this idea of like being on the outside or like his otherness mm -hmm. and it's Gansey taking a seat next to him that kind of breaks that spell and kind of cuts through that idea of otherness and he feels so overwhelmed with relief that he took that seat next to him. I, that's a really, I like that read on that scene. Cause I always think of that scene more as like, cause Gansey comes in as like president cell phone Gansey, like rich Gansey. And Adam has this like weird imposter syndrome where he's like, this is all a dream. Like he's not going to be my friend anymore. And I always thought of that more of just like him subconsciously just loving Gansey so much that he's so afraid to lose it, especially after things were so perilous with him. I didn't think about it as an own internal reflection about him being so other, but I, oh, I really, the layers, always the layers. It's so good. That he's starting to, understand Gansey on another level like see like he knew always that 
that was the president's cell phone was like a mask or like a costume that Gansey put on. But now he's really like appreciating that more on another level. Like at one point he says, or he thinks his noble and oblivious and optimistic friend was slowly opening his eyes and seeing the world for what it was. And it was filthy and violent and profane and unfair. Adam had always thought that that was what he wanted for Gansey to know, but now he wasn't sure. Gansey wasn't like anyone else. And suddenly Adam wasn't sure he really wanted him to be like, he's finally like, Gansey is really coming across on that other side now. And he's like, oh, wait, no, I liked him the way he was. Yeah. Oh, and it's so good to see. I think Gansey thinks at some point that the equilibrium between them was so hard won. They've really gone through it. And the Adam Gansey friendship stuff is is so good here. I like to after the cave scene where he was so shocked that Gansey had been so scared and, you know, thinks he never realized that Gansey could be a coward. And he thinks back to himself and how Gansey had told him repeatedly, just leave your parents' house, leave your parents' house. And it's like, turns out we're both cowards. And he says, Adam felt like he needed to reconfigure every conversation he'd ever had with Gansey in light of this new knowledge. I just wrote in my notes, they're learning. (laughs) It's great. He's finally like taking Gansey off that pedestal that he's had him on where it was like, he was this unreachable, perfect, person that was also like a source of Adam's resentment and of his longing and everything else. But now like he's realizing that Gansey is a human and Gansey's on the same level as him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting when Adam is thinking, you know, about all these, these dichotomies, he wants to be these people, but he also wants to hate these people. The fact that he's best friends with Gansey, who's literally the epitome of what he both hates and desires Mm -hmm. that was always such an interesting relationship dynamic throughout all four books yeah but now i really like to i was kind of blown away by a lot of the gansy stuff in this book but i think there's a lot of really nice moments of growth here and some of them are directly in response to Adam or because of Adam. For instance, when Adam is so proud of Gansey for fixing his car on his own and even Gansey. Gansey, Gansey telling him like Loki, like, oh yeah, no, it's not, it's not like it's a big deal or anything, but I just, I put a new alternator belt on my car and Adam thinks to himself like, oh, it's like helping a baby bird hatch from an egg. <laughs> Which is such a great description of Gansey as a person. Right. Uh, so I, just, I love that so much. And But there's more, too, that comes up. You know, Gansey thinks at one point, too, about how he looks around at all of the Aglumby boys. This is the scene where they Henry Chang and he has the petition and he gives it to Gansey. And Gansey thinks about how he used to think that he had like earned his spot here. And now he just wonders if it was like just handed to him on a silver platter and it used to bother him a little and now it really bothers him. So it's like, we're getting some growth from Gansey here, which is in a lot of ways, the direct result of, of Adam he and blue and all of them. But I really like that symmetry. They're both learning different sides of each other here. It's great. Then there's that great conversation where they're talking about how they're going to, you know, they're going to find Glendower soon. And Adam's expression was ferocious and pleased. Gansey was at once proud to know him and uncertain. He did it all. I can't believe we're doing this. Gansey said, Adam replied, I can. So they're kind of, it's kind of like flipping a little bit. They're both yielding and in good, healthy, positive ways and kind of rearranging how they fit together. And and they still lock together because they're friends. And I just, I love it. It's great. There's a great quote from Adam where he thinks, 
Gansey, his best friend, his stupid and kind and marvelous best friend. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And then we all just made the same exact face, like (laughs) head thrown back. (laughs) Eyes closed, (laughs) trying to keep our tears at bay. I think that's what I love so much about this book specifically. And I'll agree with what you said earlier, where when I first read this series, this was probably my least favorite book. And I think it's because it comes on the back of, or it's directly after such a powerful ending with dream thieves. I mean, you yeah. literally have dream dragons and dream monsters fighting each other. Morum goes missing. And then you're given this book. That's essentially just what 400 pages of character growth, yeah. which I didn't appreciate at the time because all I wanted them to do was find Glendower. I wanted them to save Gansey. I wanted, you know, to know what happened with Ronan and Adam. Um, but now, you know, rereading this book, I will put it as one of my top two favorites. I mean, I think we all know what everyone's favorite is, (laughs) Um, but there's just so much subtle action and subtle greatness about this book in particular. I think you're so, yeah, you're so right about that because a lot of the criticisms I've seen of this book are like, oh, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's not really true, first of all, because... Like we get Gwenthly and, and and all that other stuff that happens, but it is, there's so much character growth just like across the board for everybody here that you can't sit there and be like, nothing happens. Like action wise, it's, it's on the mellow end, but a lot of really important stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is ultimately a story about their friendship and their love for each other Yeah, under the guise <laughs> of a Welsh king. You know, right. yeah. it's literally the, the friends we was, made along the way. Yeah, the Welsh king was the friendship all along. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think again, I mentioned this a little bit, but I want to talk more about Gansey in this book because there's so much more there than I even thought of before. Again, more of his growth here. You know, when Noah is having his uh, freak out in money manufacturing, Gansey immediately says to him, "What can I do?" And he says, "We. What can we do?" I think that's just such a subtle difference from Gansey trying to be Mr. Fix-It for so long. And it didn't work with Ronan and it didn't work with Adam. And they're both doing better. And it's because of Gansey, yes. But as we said from the beginning, they needed to do it themselves. And so now he's realizing that he's part of a collective. He He's not the leader in the way that he always slotted himself in the, into the position of being. The self-correction is so good. Yeah. Then also, like when when Colin Greenmantle shows up and is their Latin teacher, and uh, Mr. Gray confirms that Greenmantle's who hired him to kill Niall Lynch, you know, obviously Ronan's pissed about this. And Gansey thinks that he was torn between the impulse to mitigate Ronan's pain and the one to let him stay hurt but cautious. Violence was a disease Gansey didn't think he could catch, but it was all around him. His friends were slowly infected, but he lets Ronan go. And that's like, that's growth. I think there's so much here with Gansey. I mean, I think that this is the first book where I almost want to say that Gansey in the first two books is is a presence. Like he's so much of a presence that this entire group kind of orbits around. And in this book, it's the first time that I've really viewed him as a character with both negatives and positives and actual growth i mean you see it in the first scene when he has his panic attack yeah and the way that he describes that is i think i'm having a panic attack like he hasn't really been in this position in like 11 years or seven seven years Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he's like overcome with this fear because he is mr fix it he can always fix it 
in his mind. And so to see him now become what he doesn't want anyone to see, but more of a character with, with flaws and panic attacks and anxiety. That's a really good point. He gets humanized so much in this book. Like he's kind of allowing himself to fuck up a lot too, because he's doing, he's, he's messing around with blue behind everybody's backs and he's, he's really getting down like on a human level where everybody else is. And I love that idea too, that it, this is a book where the Gansey worship by everyone else is like ratcheted up. And we'll, we can talk more about that in a minute here, but it's, I love that that comes when Gansey is becoming more humanized in a lot of ways. I love that idea of it's almost like the specter of Gansey was more than the Gansey themselves. And they're all kind of rooting through who Gansey is in those first couple of books. You know, Adam thinks about the difference between these two different sides of Gansey here. Yeah. This is Gansey laid bare. This is, raw emotional Gansey. His anxiety in this book, I kind of blows me away at where it, where it comes from. I think there's so many different facets to it. You know, is it because before he was so concentrated on fixing Ronan and Adam and they're both doing better, he has more time to concentrate himself? Is it the near-death experience at the beginning of the book is triggering anxiety within him just about what could happen to them all on this quest? Is it that they are finally getting closer to finding Glendower and he doesn't know who he'll be at the end of that? Or I actually texted Tasia this last night. I was like, I, I can't remember when he says he has the realization that he knew he was going to die. And I looked back and it is in the prologue of the Raven King. And he thinks about how subconsciously he probably knew from the second that he heard his voice on that recorder. And he knows for certain, and he finally acknowledges it and accepts it by the end of this book that he knows he's going to die. But is it that too, just in the back of his mind, he doesn't want to think about it. And also his love for for Blue making him more vulnerable too, like emotionally vulnerable. I think it's, I think it's column A, column B, column C. Like it's a little (laughs) bit of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's in this book specifically. And and what kind of confuses me when people say nothing really happens in this book. So much happens in this book. The stakes are raised so high. I mean, more is missing. There's Noah's soul decaying. He's possessed by that entity. I mean, you'll talk about it later, but Persephone, the stakes are so high in this book. And I think that Gansey is confronted with the fact that this is his quest. He's brought his friends along. If anything does happen, is there a feeling of ownership of not only the positive consequences of we found Glendower, we got our favor, but also bad things are happening to people that I love and cherish. Right. And as they get closer to the end and and finding Glendower, he's having to really think about for the first time in a while, like I'm actually close to this now what's going to happen at the end? Is this going to fix me? Am I going to feel better? Am I going to feel like I have purpose? What's going to be my purpose after this purpose is gone? Am I going to have a new one? Like it's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety for anybody. Yeah. I love the scene where he goes to Adam's apartment and he's just Adam note. He's like, first of all, this is weird. We'll we'll talk about all the pinch of it all in a little bit, but I love when Adam opens the door and he's surprised to find it's Gansy, not Ronan. Subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> anyway, he's like surprised to find Gansy there. And obviously Gansy is just making up reasons to be there. He says he needs help with one of his calculus problems, which Adam then notes that seems like Gansy did just fine with without him on it. But 
this line just knocks my socks off. Anxiety transubstantiated into rye deprecation in an oft-practiced ritual. So, you know, Gansey is obviously very anxious. He's breaking in that moment with Adam, but he's he's trying to keep it together. And he's been trying to keep it together for a long time. And I think a lot of other things have been going on. And now they're all seeing the cracks that make up Gansey's facade. And, oh, my poor anxious boy. I just yeah. love that they love him more for it. Like, all of them have yeah. so much more appreciation for Gansey. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think in that scene, Adam makes a comment about how weird it is to see Gansey in his tiny apartment. It almost makes it seem tinier and dingier. But I also <laughs> think it's probably weird to see Gansey in his apartment because it's also weird to see Gansey so undone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In his PJs needing help, maybe not with his homework, <laughs> but something. Right. Gansey also just in a quick about face in that scene, just all of a sudden out of nowhere says, everyone says just fine Glendower, but all around me, the cave walls are crumbling. And that's like a recurring theme that keeps coming up. He, he talks uh, in the scene where they talk with Mr. Gray about green mantle and what his whole deal is. And Gansey thinks how badly he wanted to let green mantle be the gray man's problem. But again, he saw that narrowing black tunnel and at the bottom of grave. So there's a lot of death imagery spiraling through him, which again, could be from any one of these reasons. I think probably most strongly that subconsciously he knows he's going to die. And man, but then too, I think we all kind of have some of these things noted here. There's also a lot of hints at Gansey being made at two different times and being of several different times, which Mm -hmm. is also feeding into his anxiety because he doesn't know what it means yet. Oh, it's so good. I particularly like the scene where they have, as we used to call them in my Catholic school days, a dress down day where you didn't have to wear your uniform. And he is anxious about it. The lack of uniform somehow made his anxiety worse. It reminded him that he was existing now in no other time. And I like that quote because then he goes on to say that it was easier to think that Aglenby was of any time or no time at all when they're mm-hmm. all in their uniforms. And I think what's so striking about that is when Gansey is forced to confront the here and now, subconsciously, again, he knows he's close to his imminent death, even though he doesn't know what that means. And when he's able to kind of play with the concept of time a little more, he doesn't necessarily feel as grounded in that anxiety and the sense of dread at what's coming ahead. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. It's so layered. I just love how he he goes on to think that he spent the last seven years of his life chasing places that made him feel like this, places that felt like Aglan B slipped out of time, where, like you said, all times started to feel like they were, in fact, at the same time. So that's, I love these so, so subtle, these hints about his remaking on the ley line. And it has nothing to do with his first death, but his second one that hasn't happened yet or has already happened, really. Yeah. Uh, there's this other quote too. He stood for so long that he felt disoriented. He could have been standing a minute. He could have been standing an hour. It could be now. It could be a year ago. He was as much of part of this room as his telescope and his stacks of books, unchanging, unable to change. He could not decide if he was tired or tired of waiting. And then, so again, so it's so good. I, I adore it. And then one of the things I also want to talk about then, and maybe this is a good segue into talking about some Noah stuff then too, is this scene with Noah and Gansey where Noah has this like clay figure thing. 
And I had never really like thought much of that scene before until I was reading it. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. So they have this, this clay figure that was a lump of dark clay that Noah had formed into a small negative image snowman. And Gansey's looking at it as they're talking and he thinks it was not much of a man anymore. It was only because Gansey had seen it before that he could still see the suggestion of the figure in the featureless lump, which is totally what's happening to Noah, right? They keep talking about how he's fading in and out. They can't really see him. They know that he's Noah because they they know what Noah is, but he's not there in that same form. And he has this really wonderful heart to heart with Noah. And at the end, Noah gives him this like lump of clay and Gansey said, I don't know what I'll be if I'm not looking for him. And Noah put the clay in Gansey's hands. That's exactly how I feel about being alive again. And I'm like, this is just the most perfect symbolism for the idea that Gansey is here solely because of Noah's sacrifice to allow him to rebuild and remake himself into whatever he wants to be. That lump of clay is, is again, the most simplistic metaphor in a lot of ways about how Gansey, once he finishes this quest, everything's going to lock into place. He's going to be totally able to mold himself into whatever he wants to be. And uh, just like, I got chills reading it. I loved it. It might be a simplistic metaphor, but it's not one that I had actually ever really thought of before you just talked it out right now. So thank you for that. Well, I was reading it. I was like, this is so weird. Why is this like a thing that is brought up here? And they bring it up as a joke. Like, is this something that Ronan dreamt? And Noah says something uh, pretending to be Ronan. And they both laugh about it. It's like a rope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, when I think about it, too, it's one of the only scenes I can really think of of Gansey and Noah together. There's not a ton in the first couple of books. We get a couple of nice ones here. But I, I love that as Noah is continuing to decay and decay, Gansey's also going through all this stuff, too. But this moment of it's a, like passing the torch almost is Maggie. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking stuff, really. That's actually really interesting. You're right. There isn't a lot of Gansey and Noah stuff before Mm -hmm. this moment. It's always they're in the group. But it's also interesting to see like Noah and Gansey's character arcs because Noah is kind of decaying. He's becoming more of a shadow of essentially just like a whisper of himself. And at the same time, Gansey's character arc is he's becoming like less of a presence and more of like a real person. Yeah, that's like a perfect way to put it. And ultimately, they're both going to end up at the exact same finish line, right? That's the whole point of everything. But just watching them kind of cross paths and going separate ways to get there, I thought was really cool. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we have that scene with them. Then we have also the scene with Blues Bear for this, too, after... Noah has the freak out in the counselor's office. <laughs> Jenna's melting down. We've lost Jenna. <laughs> but they have, well, we can talk about that freak out too in a minute. But, you know, in that scene, oh, it's so upsetting. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm tired of it, Noah said. Tired of what? Gansy asked, voice kind, decaying. He had been crying. That was what was wrong with his face. Blue realized nothing supernatural. Noah shrugged in a watery way. And then Gansey asks him if he wants them to find a way to put him to rest. And Noah starts freaking out. No, you don't know. You don't know. And it's on one level. Yes. I'm sure he is very, he doesn't want to leave them either. He, this has been his purpose in life. He finally has friends who love him, but also he can't, he has to keep on this path 
because he needs to save Kenzie. Uh, well, he in, in the I'm tired of decaying thing. It goes both ways because, yeah, he's he's tired of of disappearing, but also he wants to just be allowed to disappear. But he can't yet because he needs he's got work to do. He's got this whole everything that he that he died for that Gansey died for is is hinging on him being there to make sure they get through it. I just, it's very upsetting. It goes to this idea that they're all kind of experiencing time differently. So Noah doesn't live time as linearly, linearly, sure. as linearly. I'll take it. <laughs> he's not living time as linearly as the rest of them. You know, he's replaying his own death uh, in the last book. You know, there's this idea that he does know what's going to happen everything, all the steps that need to take place. And then I think there's maybe a passage about Ronan aging more in the summer than the rest of them. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so interesting to watch like how time is used so differently for each of them. Yeah. Well, and they say this too. Noah says it's easy to know a lot of things when time goes around instead of straight, which is just exactly what he's doing. I Love the scene because this is just like the epitome of Noah's tragic storyline where he just wants to stop. And it almost comes across as this is painful for him. You know, he's, he's tired of decaying and we'll talk about it when we get to the school scene. I have a lot of thoughts about him hating the beginning or loving the beginning. He talk about it. Go for it. it Okay. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) So the part where Noah's in the school with Blue and he says, I think I missed this part. He said, the beginning. This is the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. Noah leaned back and inhaled. Oh, wait, no. It's the other one. I forgot. I actually hate this part. It's just such an emotion that, like, he loves it, but but he hates it. It's the beginning because he knows what he has to do and he knows how it's going to end up. And I just feel like Noah's entire character <laughs> is such an interesting part of this story Yeah, because he does know what's going on. He knows what's going on in the way that Blue kind of knows what's going on, where she knows Gansey's life is going to end in some way, shape, or form. What I, I like about that scene, too, and you think about it, he says, this isn't the part I like. He's like, he likes the end. Okay, you think about that. And it's like, okay, yeah, kids leave school at the end of the summer. But I think it goes, too, about how he just wants to be done. He yeah. wants to yeah. end. You know, that is the most important I- I thing for him. You know, he he senses a sense of excitement going on and it, it's jumbling for him. And he wants it to be, he wants that feeling. And I feel like he's only going to get it when he does slip from time. It's and knowing just, knowing alive Noah for, for the kind of person he was, I bet he did love the beginning. The beginnings were probably what he did love, but... Dead Noah, as we know, is a different is a different person. Yeah, and I do to end. Yeah, him talking about whether he loves or hates this part, and whether he loves or hates the beginning, almost kind of goes back to this idea that time is a circle because the Mm -hmm. end is also the beginning, and the beginning is also the end. So he can't remember: Do I love this part? Do I hate this part? Because the beginning and the end are kind of the same thing. Yeah, I love that. It's kind of like a nod to that. You know, time is a flat circle. All times are happening at the same time. And also that part where Gansey asks him if he heard Glendower or he heard the the voice talking about Glendower and Noah like looks sad and and just shakes his head. And it's because he was the voice. 
It's so it's so upsetting. Uh, it's too much. It's too much. But that is what makes it all the more upsetting is that there's just like just lovely, funny Noah moments in this book. I love this in the beginning when they're like gonna go in the cave. And I love first of all, they sent Noah to babysit Matthew. <laughs> and just Okay, it's blind leading the blind, I think, it's in my mind. <laughs> but, so they were talking about why, why he's not going to go with. And I think someone makes a pithy comment. It's like, you're already dead. Like, what difference does it make? And the narration is that sometimes it wasn't the energy that failed Noah. It was his courage. He'll be a champ, Blue said, punching Noah's arm lately. I'll be a champ, repeated Noah. It's so precious. It reminds me of once Maggie tweeted someone like tweeted at her like how do you pronounce Cherney and she or how do you pronounce Noah's last name and she just responded it's pronounced and it was all phonetically written out precious ghost boy (laughs) 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 like it's true though I mean that's what that's great there's this moment from Blue Noah couldn't eat but he liked the gelato parlor in town for reasons that escaped Blue that's after he finds out it was her birthday he's like why didn't you tell us we can go get gelato these very endearing moments he's just so sweet and oh and Noah pairing is one of my favorite pairings in the entire series just because they are they are so fucking cute together it is just yeah adorable one of my favorite quotes is a a blue and noah moment they're they're so adorable and they have a a lot of really nice moments but are not that are not thwarted by the horrific explosions of decay that turn noah into this awful being during those moments she she never never holds that against him and it's it's really nice to see I love their relationship. And I think the interesting part about Noah is he is this adorable ghost boy, but Maggie uses such scary imagery to describe him sometimes. I know it's not in this book, but what always gets me about Noah and what I keep remembering that's always kind of frightening is Blue makes a comment how she thinks that she's seeing his alive body and his dead body at the same time. And that this is the only way that her mind can marry the two is by like seeing this smudge on his face that like it's scary imagery when you think about it but he's just such an adorable character he's adorable and frightening at the same time and it's Mm -hmm. but then he's so upset that he's so frightening when he's crying that makes me so sad you know that scene at jesse didley's house it's such a perfect marriage of like the fear and also just the the pure empathy and the sadness that is noah's story because you get the scene where like He's his eyes are all black and he's staring at her and like he's he's gotten closer somehow without her noticing and then she goes to stand up but he stays the exact same level as her like that is fucking terrifying yeah. or that when- is so scary but then you know Jesse throws the mirror up between them and and Noah's like crying and going no 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 that is so sad it is so and sad. it's it's just such a weird like existence between the two of them in my head where it's like he's terrifying but also i just feel so sad for him he's so upset that uh, about it too you know he at the end of that scene when they confront him after he has the explosion in the counselor's office and he's just crying at that and he says well you said i could use your power and she's not like that and i'm sorry it's just it's it's harboring stuff but yeah no then it is terrifying uh the moment that gives me chills is when he starts freaking out at jesse ditley's and all of a sudden he goes blue and she's like instantly relieved and then he goes lily and she's like no no lily blue oh my god and i'm like getting heebie-jeebies thinking about it it's so could scary. you guys imagine if maggie wrote just an entire horror book oh my god so i would shit my pants how do i get this i know i, I want it too <laughs> uh man I, this is the first book i think 
where you really see Noah's potential downfall. Yeah. Like where he's really in jeopardy because I think that the last two books are really, oh, he's dead, but that's fun. We can see him mm-hmm. still part of the group. He's Casper the friendly ghost at that yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is this is, I think, the first book where you're like, oh no, something's wrong with him, something's happening to him. Maybe his presence is not something that's permanent necessarily right. with the group. This is really the real world of like the the four books here because it's like this is when things stop getting stop being nice and start getting real it's it really is yeah Yeah. i think this is like the first time that the main group has been like really affected like people have died that we didn't really care about i mean Mm -hmm. say what you want about kravinsky we love it we hate him we hate to love him but this is i think the first time that they're really affected in like a real dangerous way and then Mm -hmm. one of the things you said earlier too uh, was about you know the first time you read these books you're so nervous about what's happening are they gonna find glenn and you're particularly nervous about gansey you're waiting that whole time for him to put on that aglenby sweater which happens here in blues like shit this could have been it and i i wouldn't have missed it so hard to live life in reverse like that but in contrast now reading through it's much easier to read and know that gansey will be okay that anxiety isn't there but my anxiety comes from just watching and knowing what inevitably is going to happen to noah because it's that's the the real loss here (laughs) oh god and i think it's just so shocking too because you don't think it will be noah because noah's always projected this idea of he's already dead what what more could happen to him right in the second book when he's fighting that dream monster and he falls off the car and gets run over and ronan thinks oh he's fine he's already dead so there's this idea that he's invincible because the worst thing that's ever going to happen to him has already happened to him And so I think that makes Noah's story arc to me like even more tragic because you Mm -hmm. think he's going to be okay. You know, he gets possessed and he randomly explodes, but you're like, he's already dead. Like he'll be fine. (laughs) But, but, but he's not. Oh my God. Okay. I think (laughs) he's crying about Noah Turney hours. (laughs) Yeah. It's time to leave here. This part of the conversation <laughs> to lock it up that's the episode yeah uh, thanks okay. for listening <laughs> um, okay. i've already cried in the back of an uber about noah so I'll, i was wondering I heard about, about that actually <laughs> i'll never forget i think you text me i think i was with you and then you got in the car drinks were involved i'm they just gonna say this you like get in the car and you text me and you're like, corinne my uber driver's name is noah now cry we had literally just finished reading it I'm like crying to Crin in a booth at some bar. Drinks were involved with the emotions. <laughs> we're still valid. <laughs> and Ample of course, my, my Uber driver's name is Noah. And this poor man just had, was like, oh my God. And I couldn't be like, it's it's you. It's your name. <laughs> I just read a book and I'm sad now. I just had to be like, nope, this is on parts. What, 1 a.m.? He was probably used to it. So it's fine. Yeah. I mean, at least you weren't doing any other number of bad things that people could do in an Uber. So it's fine. I was just crying about the death of a fictional character. Who was already dead. dead. Who's, Who's already super cool, dead. normal things. It's, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, let's move on because, again, I could just not cry. I've been crying for years at this point about Noah. So let's talk about Blue shall we? Because this is, I mean, the book's called Lily Lily Blue. Can't believe we haven't talked about her yet, but uh, this is her book 
it's in a lot book. of ways. It's a blue book. I feel bad because I still, it's just not as compelling to me as other characters. I think, Keisha, you highlighted this in your notes. One of the things we've talked about before, this immaturity of blue and this like binary way of thinking that she has. Maybe that's why I still have a hard time. Yeah. I mean, the thing about blue is she can be pretty judgmental based on things that are very surface level. I know I know that she she says she doesn't hate Aurora, but she wants to. Like she wishes she could hate Aurora because of something that Niall did to her. Niall dreamt her into existence. And yeah, that's super gross. But you know who we're mad at? We're mad at Niall. <laughs> we right. don't want to hate Aurora for that. It is absolutely the opposite of her fault. So it's it's stuff like that that makes blue sometimes a little bit difficult. I do really like her in this book, though, because she she's dealing with so much with, with her mom being missing, and she's obviously not handling it well in a lot of scenes. Like, I think she throws receipts in Kala's face at one point, and yeah. it's, she's just going through it, but she's also figuring out so much about herself. Like, this is where Blue, her character gets a lot more depth, I think, here than right. she's had before. She gets... She gets experience. Like I th- this happens in part two, which we'll talk about, obviously, the Persephone stuff. But she thinks to herself at the time, like, this is the first, like, really bad thing that's ever happened to her. Right. And that's one of the things we so, talked about yeah. in our, our very first episode in this series is that Blue does not have the same trauma that these other boys have. And it's, it makes it hard for her. And that, you know, that's the part point about Aurora where she like hates Aurora. That's true. But then she says right after she has this thought is that she wouldn't have left her daughter the right before the start of senior year. So it's like, she yeah. has some finally now trauma that stems from Mora's leaving and, you know, no one's really, and I don't blame her for that at all no. because that was so irresponsible of Mora. Oh my like, god! Which Mora even thinks about? Thank God, she's like, this yeah. was maybe not good. I should have put more in a note. Yeah, well, or maybe just like not done that on her, right. own, not left a note. Period. You know. Yeah. But what I do like though about the blue stuff then and how she does have this again very binary way of thinking. We talk a lot about the uh, black and white and thinking of black and white comes up in this book a lot, and that's not the way to do it. And I, I like then this, the, that we have Mr. Gray as kind of this in-between character for her too. And we can talk about that in a minute, but you know, she does have this binary way of thinking, but she's starting to learn to think more in the gray. And I think that that's interesting, especially when it comes to this imagery of the three sleepers that we have in this book, one dark, one light, and one in between. And the one in between is Gwenthlian, we'll find out. And that's more akin to to blue she is a character that blue connects with in a lot of ways and so i like that blue then is going towards this more middle ground of of weighing right and wrong and i also like that she's getting kind of called out for her more judgmental or you know like in the scene where she's talking to Kala and she's like morale is low the troops don't want to go to community college and Kala is like well maybe you shouldn't complain about that to somebody who worked their ass off to go to community college and and blue is still being a brat and she's like oh is this going to be one of those i had to walk uphill both ways in the snow and she's like no this is a think about your entitlement blue sergeant thing and blue finally like she's like oh you know she feels ashamed of what she said but she does not have the privilege that gansey and ronan have right but she still has more privilege than a lot of other people do and she still has options and she's acting like a little brat sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I think you see that in the scene with the guidance counselor where she says, Hey, I want to go to this school. And the guidance counselor says, okay, let's think more 
you know, realistically. And I think Blue thinks she's stuck too. She's stuck in the way that Adam is stuck and Henrietta, but the stakes are less for Blue if she gets stuck, where mm-hmm. Adam doesn't have a choice. He can't stay. He needs to go. Yeah. Blue, if she stays, it's not the end of the world. She just ends up another woman living at 300 Fox. Yeah. She just or like up- she goes to community college and that's totally fine. That's a perfectly respectable route to go. Right. So I understand that she's got really lofty goals and I appreciate that about her, but yeah. also don't complain about that to somebody who really did work her ass off to go to community college. Right. And I like that difference you highlighted, Jenna, between her and Adam in that we get that in that scene where she go when they go to find Jesse Ditley and she's it's a great blue moment because she knows how to work these people. These are her people. These are her Henrietta people. She just stay in the it. car with your fancy face. Yeah. <laughs> and Gansy like doesn't say anything to that. He's like, yeah, no. He's just like, yeah, my face is My face fancy. is fancy as fuck. Like, I'm not getting out of this car. <laughs> um, but she thinks about how there's two different sides of Henrietta, right? The side that you get a cup of sugar from your neighbor, which is where she's from. And then there's this other side of Henrietta, which is where Adam's from, where people like shout racist, racist epithets from their front porches. Like, that's Adam's. Henrietta. So yeah, she is similar to Adam in a lot of ways, but she like exactly like you said, she has a more of a choice than Adam does. But then at the same time, it is so compelling when she thinks things like, of course, it was impossible. It had been impossible before she arrived and continue being impossible forever. It was just that spending time with Gansey and the others had made her think that the impossible might be more possible than she thought before. And she gets her own, we'll talk about it when we read the Raven King, like she gets her own adventure and she's set on a good path. But I get those feelings of it's kind of like what Adam said. You just want something to be easy. Her life is much easier already compared to Adam's. But at this point, her mom has lost, left her. She's being told in a very awful way, as Noah, ghost Noah says, while he's in the room with her, with this rude. Because counselor's <laughs> being awful to her. Yeah. Uh, I love Noah's note that, like, I, if I was a counselor, I'd be cheerier. And all, he would. He would be, he would, if oh Noah God, had lived, he would have made a great school counselor. God damn it. I would, I would, <laughs> I would go to therapy. From I would receive therapy from Nella. I would pay for that. <laughs> He'd be very encouraging. He would just like pat my hair and I'd like feel calm. He's like, I'll you know, it'll make you feel better. A Mustang. <laughs> <laughs> Let's throw some Blink-182 on. Oh, Noah. God, we keep circling back. I know. It's just bad. But yeah, no. So I, and I do, there's a lot of beautiful lead up here in these early chapters with the trees and Blue thinking about how she felt like they were sentient. And if she let her mind wander far enough, she can almost feel the sensation of the forest listening to her. So that's all very she lovely. She hears them at Jessie Ditley's too. Like she mm-hmm. hears that, that language and she thinks she's imagining it, but yeah, she's not. Yeah. I just think it's interesting how she needs the boys to believe in the impossible. She literally lives in a house filled with psychics, but she needs them to think that the impossible is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes back to, she's wants something more. I mean, she is the non-psychic in that psychic house. And yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's definitely like, as we've talked about with other characters, like an otherness to blue in the way that she's not other, she's normal. Right. Yeah. She's too normal for her group. And so she's always kind of been too normal to be a part of her family and too Too weird weird for everybody else to be a part of normal society. And now she's found this group that she is fits in with. That's such a good point. Yeah. (laughs) 
we'll talk about you know there is that one moment where she thinks about like this friendship group but it it, it comes to that we've end, all but, written that down. Yeah. <laughs> but it does just it's again a very subtle way to point at the metaphor of this whole story the impossibility of the boys is not that this magical quest that they're on. It's not that Ronan's a dreamer. It's not that Adam has this bargain with Cape's water. And he can like control the ley line. It is the impossibility and this wonder of having friends like they do. And I just, uh, you don't need all these other fancy things, Lou, because you, you have them and it's, mm-hmm. it's great. Oh God. All right. <laughs> there and there's n- great blue and Gansey stuff. Yeah, let's talk about the blue and Gansey stuff. Because I don't think actually, I was going to say, is there Ronan stuff? There's not a lot of Ron- just individual Ronan stuff. I think we have to talk about it in tandem with, it's, with Adam. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. let's talk about the bluesy of it all in this book. Uh, I just... I have so many bluesy notes. <laughs> like... I'm just looking at my notes at one point. I just have written in all caps, that yogurt spoon, though. <laughs> What? Which time? The time that he thinks about and his her mouth being on? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like grounds him. She <laughs> both. I mean, she automatically hands it to him the second he walks in the door. And I love that both of them are just like watching each other do like that is them kissing without them kissing. Yeah. And I also love like I think it's in the very beginning, uh, when they're in Cave's Water and Blue makes blue flower petals fall from the sky. And um she thinks that they're they're falling on on her skin like a kiss and then sh- a bunch of them fall on Gansey's cheeks and directly on his mouth like that is her kissing him in in the only way she really can and even Ronan like she catches Ronan looking at her during that and he's like given her given her some narrowed eyes <laughs> i would just like to say i've never considered yogurt sexy but it is in the book and so I congratulations guess. maggie <laughs> <laughs> for, for making a dairy product seem unbelievably hot. Um, number two, I love that scene in the beginning because it's so like sweet and beautiful. And it's such a juxtaposition to what would actually happen or will happen when they kiss, where it's just like this like dark curse death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you're, like, it's a goodbye kiss, basically. Yeah. And I think it's kind of her that she gave us kind of like this sweet chaste moment that is essentially the only sweet chaste kiss they will ever have <laughs> what did you expect I- <laughs> oh my god yeah, i'm the one that wrote it and said that i thought nikolai was gonna die so i know i, I know it's gonna happen when I, you brought me on here knife to the heart from Dreda. thank you i'm gonna have to send you that fan art of them kissing through the saran wrap because they could yeah. do it all right just throw some saran wrap up i've seen it <laughs> uh i guess the next thing we have to talk about is the the car the hand touch oh my god let's just read it <laughs> in the rearview mirror he caught blue's eyes by accident strangely enough he saw his own thoughts reflected in her face excitement and consternation casually out of view of ronan making sure adam was still sleeping Gansey dangled his hand between the driver's seat and the door palm up finger stretched back to blue this was not allowed. He knew it was not allowed by rules he himself had set. He would not permit himself to play favorites between Adam and Ronan. He and Blue couldn't play favorites in this way either. She would not see the gesture anyway. She would ignore it if she did. His heart hummed. Blue touched his fingertips. Just this. He pinched her fingers lightly just for a moment and then withdrew his hand and put it back on the wheel. His chest felt warm. This was not allowed. Ah! <laughs> And my favorite part of that is when he thinks Ronan had not seen Adam was still sleeping. The only casualty was his pulse. Yeah. 
<laughs> if you've listened, listeners, to our Scorpio Races episode, you know that I am just a really big fan of how Maggie is able to convey so much with just very casual touching in the Scorpio races. It's like wrist holding and like pulse feeling. This is just like fingertips. And I'm like, give me more. <laughs> like, it's incredible. Ooh, that's a wonderful moment. And then we have so many good phone calls with them. They're very bla- lame, bad flirting. <laughs> it's, it's so cute. They're both just like so, so bad at it. This is where Adam comes in, right? Adam is the best Florida of the entire group. He really is. Oh, yeah. He's he's reading her something and she's all, are you reading oh, yeah. off notes? And he says, no, and closes his journal. <laughs> and she just like knows what's going on. Oh, but then she calls and says she thought she was calling Congress, which yeah. is like a nice nod back to her thinking about him as president's cell phone. And he's like, oh, I'm, you know, sorry that you got the wrong number. And she goes, easy mistake to make might make it again. And there's a long silence. And she's like, should I say anything else? Like, what should I do? And he goes, shouldn't, but I hope you do. My notes just read RIP me. Like, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye to me. Those phone calls are great, obviously, on a surface level because they're just very sweet and very endearing. And Gansy's like laying awake at night just because she doesn't have a cell phone. So he can't call her. It's just like hoping, praying that she calls him. And it allows him to fall asleep every night. And he goes into the bathroom slash laundry room slash like kitchen that they have, closes the door. And it just is really such a calming force for him. I also do like that there's a moment where like Noah then appears in the bathroom and he says, don't tell the others. And Noah's like, I'm dead, not stupid. <laughs> it's another nice classic. He's Noah. sitting on the floor of that disgusting room, but he's also like, he's like barefoot and rubbing his feet on the, on the ground and yes! thinking that it's like sensual and it reminds him of blue skin. I'm like, this is gross, but like you're making it sexy somehow. And I don't like, what is this? What is this wizardry? I know it's like the yogurt stuff. Like the yogurt stuff on a surface level makes me think of like the dregs at the bottom of a yogurt cup are like gross and like almost like back they like it's a backwash. Like what is happening here? And then he's like, mm, like fruit. Like, yeah. uh. <laughs> but like one point where he describes it as slimy. Yeah. But like yeah. in a hot way. <laughs> That's no. <laughs> but it was. It's like I am the kombucha girl meme, except my reaction is this is for the same thing. It's like sharing yogurt spoons. <laughs> I am both sides of the kombucha girl meme. Cause I feel, I don't know what to feel. I feel all the things about it, about the yogurt, but then, you know, again, just showing though that Yancy we've talked about is circling through all this anxiety in this book. And blue is just that calming force, how good she is for him in the cave where he's, he's freaking out. And she keeps trying to talk to him is just really. And likewise lovely. too. Because she's she's sitting there trying to make jokes, trying not to show her vulnerability and her concern about her mom and everything else. And and she makes some, I, I can't remember, just some offhanded joke. And he just stops and he goes, we'll find her. Like she didn't say anything about her mom, but he knew what she was talking, what she was really worried about. And it's just the, the being known thing. Like he thinks there is nothing inherently guilty about the moment, except that Gansey burned with guilt and thrill and desire and the nebulous feeling of being truly known. And that is for both of them right there. I just, I love that. Oh my God. So like, that's great. We have more good stuff from them coming up later in the rest of this book, but we have some (laughs) just really, we're really cooking with gas now when it comes to Adam and Ronan and we love to see it. I don't even know where to start. Great. Maybe I dreamt you. Okay. then. (laughs) Thanks for the straight teeth. Like, 
<laughs> just like, See, that is that is flirting. Blue and Gansey take notes. Hey, if it works for Blue and Gansey, I'm pleased for them. I know they're they're fine. <laughs> they're just like they're take, they're doing great. Take your nerdiness and run with it. Like uh, it's it's great. I like just every, I my notes are out of control. It's like every little mm-hmm. thing that mm-hmm. they have done in this book. I'm very into, but you know the when they're in caves water at the beginning and adam says incorruptus they're talking about how the gray warren won't be harmed in caves water and adam goes incorruptus i never thought anyone would use that word to describe lynch ronan looked as pleased as a pit viper ever could he's just like oh adam's talking about me how <laughs> exciting <laughs> so there's all these like really great surface level stuff that happens that is just flirting you know the their underhanded comments to each other, these jokes that they have with each other are so great. I also love, I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier um, with Gansey coming over and it not being Ronan, but um, Adam also thinks unlike Ronan, Gansey appeared out of place inside the apartment. So Ronan appeared like very of the apartment, like he belonged there. Yeah. And And coming from Adam, that is, that is something. Yeah. And like, I love this scene in the classroom, which we talked about a little bit and how Adam like comments on people coming in afterwards. But before that, it's just him and Ronan. There's so much chewy stuff there. He was trying to picture Ronan as the teacher and he like couldn't do it. And then just this turn of phrase, he didn't know what it was. If it was like his sleeves pulled up or quote, the apocalyptic way he had tied his tie. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were so affected by how his tie was tied, Adam. Like, what and then this flirting too the stuff about Mallory we'll talk about all the humor in this book that comes from some of the side characters at the end but Ronan has Mallory he's always complaining about his hips or his eyes or the government or oh and that dog it's not like he's blind or crippled or anything why couldn't he have something normal like a raven and Ronan just ignores him and <laughs> so anyway and, and Adam he's like uh like and he's old like throwing Ronan a bone because Ronan's like he's so old they're just they're so cute and then uh as the people start coming in that's when ronan like closes his eyes puts his feet up on the desk this is not allowed blah 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 blah. and uh, adam thinks instant insolence this was the version of himself he prepared for aglan b for his older brother declan and sometimes for gansey ronan was always saying he never lied but he wore a liar's face what i love about that is you know adam is really starting to realize who ronan he's not that way and they do fight and he thinks about how he didn't say he wasn't going to fight with Ronan because they always fought even though he's trying actively not to fight with Gansey and Blue he is seeing that Ronan has this other side to himself and it's very telling that that only comes out when it's just him and Adam yeah I completely agree I also wrote down that passage and I just think like Ronan essentially performs for Mm -hmm. some people and he doesn't for Adam and I think that is just the cutest thing in the entire world yeah yeah and the way ronan flirts is just yeah it's so perfectly him he he just shows up at adam's work scares the shit out of him insults him a bunch uh and then veils but then comes there mm -hmm, calls it calls adam like a baby he's like stop pissing yourself and then he leaves after saying fuck you and then leaves freaking hand cream in his car because he noticed that Adam Adam's hands get chapped and bleed oh and nobody God. else did 
But Ronan did, of course. Captain Hand Kink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have like several thoughts on that scene we need to break down. One, first of all, I just can't help but think these Southerners, man, it's what, September? And they're all talking about how cold it is. And I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, it's 12 degrees where I live. So, you know, why, what is happening? You would not, I fear for how it's going for Adam when he moves to the Northeast for college and has to enter winters if this is how he's struggling. So that's like my pithy comment, number one. But also <laughs> the imagery of how, oh my God, this like breaks my heart. And I think about it every time, like now that my hands are chapped or something, I cannot help but think of poor baby Adam Parrish, his hands always chapping and not realizing that licking them it makes it worse and that he always and even then he felt tempted to give himself that instant like brief relief heartbreaking stuff so that's why like for your hands Ronan leaving this hand lotion is just it's not even just this superficial thing that Adam is, is struggling with it's just very symbolic of like getting everything there is to get about Adam I just have a hard time so Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just gonna say I I just love it so much because it's not a it's not a complaint Adam has ever vocalized or a vulnerability he's ever shared with anybody, but he doesn't need to with Ronan. Ronan sees what he needs and he provides right. what yeah, he can. I just it's kind of a mirror of that moment between Blue and Gansey where she doesn't say all the things she's worried about, and he's able to pick up on you know we'll find her meaning yeah. her mom. And then yeah. this is a moment where Adam hasn't told anyone about his hands, but Ronan somehow has picked up on the fact that they're uncomfortable and he has dreamt something for him. Can't I love it so much. Then I also I do have this fight there during that scene where Ronan says to Adam, you know, Aglam B is useless for people like us. And he's like, I can dream things. You can control the ley line. And Adam gets really defensive about this. He's like, you know, just, you know, I've worked so hard for this. You want me to throw it away? And he says, be a loser if you want to be, which is a low blow. Adam, as we've talked about already, is struggling with how he does not, why does, why is he working so hard for this Agamby lifestyle when he hates it? He's, it's a constant source of struggle for him. So when he says to him, you know, be a loser if you want to, that's him projecting his own idea that he's a loser if he doesn't get to do that. Mm -hmm. But like, think of how heartbreaking that must be for Ronan to hear from this guy. He's so into like, especially because there. Ronan just us to them. Yeah. Like Aglam B we don't, it's not for people <laughs> like us, you know, he's, he's looping Adam in with himself and that is a big thing for Ronan. So to have that kind of thrown back in his face is yeah. not cool, but also Ronan, like honestly read the room. Right. Then I also just love the imagery of like the night horror escapes the barns and like flies to where Adam is. Just yeah, yeah. You, it is all of all all of Ronan's dream things want what Ronan wants. <laughs> uh, what I like then, and we have this fight about Aglamby, but then we have this beautiful scene at the barns. This chapter is so good. One of the things that you know when they're looking at all the stuff there, Adam has so many realizations about Ronan here that are so great. But he thinks at one point too about how. Oh, of of course, no wonder Ronan was bored by Aglumby. Like, look at all these things he can do. The wonder, the awe he feels that that is chef's kiss perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that part of it. There's because so it's also there. the first time where, where Adam is thinking about how he knows how Ronan feels about him. And he doesn't mm-hmm. think of it in any kind of way that's like, oh, Ronan has a crush on me. That's weird. Ronan has feelings for me. Ew. 
he thinks of it in like, Ronan has a crush on me. I can't believe that someone like him finds someone like me worthy and he feels proud of it. He wants to like shout it from the rooftops, but it's not his secret to share, but he's proud of it. And I think that is a huge hint at what Adam's own true feelings are that he hasn't really thought about it all yet. But the fact that he is not put off in any way at all about Ronan's crush and is in fact like in awe of it is very, very telling. Yeah. I, I'm also just thinking about this right now. So I don't have the wording directly in front of me, but after he kind of has this moment of realization, he kind of backtracks it. Doesn't he say, or maybe I'm wrong. It could be this, or it couldn't be essentially. Yeah. Like he doesn't yeah. really quite want to name it yet. And it reminds me of what happens immediately after this, when he's looking at the like pure dream thing, where he's like, it's a book, it's a planet. I keep looking at it, but I can't look at it because the name is on the tip of my tongue, but I don't want to name it. And it kind of reminds me of him thinking about Ronan's crush, where maybe he doesn't quite want to name it yet because he doesn't quite know how he wants to react to it. Other that. than on this like very surface level, like vanity. Right. Know? Because, and I think, yeah, absolutely. Because he's he's thinking that like, he's proud that Ronan has a crush on him, but not thinking about the implications of that, which is that he finds something or he finds Ronan to be desirable because if he is in awe that, that Ronan of all people likes him, right? then what does that say about what he thinks about Ronan? I was going to say, but it also breaks my heart because when he's thinking about this, um, you know, he has this like moment of vanity and he likes the idea that Ronan has a crush on him because Ronan could have a crush on any, on all of right. these other, you know, Gansey. For yeah, example. I have the quote and, here. Um, See, Adam Parrish is wantable, worthy of a crush, not just by anyone, someone like Ronan who could want Gansey or anyone else and chose Adam for his hungry eyes. Like it, it is kind of a sad He's comparing himself and finding himself wanting to all these other people and not thinking, no, he has a crush. I'm awesome. Yeah, it's a sad reflection of his own state of self-esteem. And it's very interesting to look at how he has those feelings, but he's also drawing this direct parallel between himself and Ronan as both being lonesome. We had an earlier chapter where Adam thinks, you know, that he was lonesome, a state of being a part of being other, a lonesome. But that's what he thinks about Ronan this whole time too. He's walking through the barns and when he's thinking about how he, of course he's bored by Adam, but he is this totally different person that no one can relate to. Uh, except for you, buddy. It you. You can like you are are the ties that bind there. I mean, you have this thing in common, and that is at the heart of what your connection is there. So, like that stuff is also great. And then I know Tisha, you have some great thoughts about just the significance of the barns. Yeah, he thinks Adam allowed himself a wistful moment to imagine an Adam Parrish grown from these fields instead of the dusty park outside Henrietta, an Adam Parrish who is allowed to want this home for himself. You can have it. You can have it. He really, he just, and I think maybe that's another, another part of him not being willing to kind of reach out for that and think about the implications of that Ronan crush, because then it would mean that he has to think about the fact that this could be his if he wanted it. And just to like, look at that in comparison to what we get in called on the Hawk, where he has obviously so ingratiated himself into the barns when Ronan comes to Harvard 
Adam hugs him and says, you smell like home. You know, he tells him repeatedly, I'm coming back. It's just, <laughs> it like moves me so much. But then also this, he's wandering around the barns with Ronan and sees how it was easy to see how to exile him was to excise his soul. And that makes me so sad when I think about Call Down the Hawk and how Ronan can't leave the barns. It's a double-edged sword. He is so wrapped up in the barns and it is who he is. But later when we get to Call Down the Hawk, he wants something more and he can't have it because he's tied to the, I can't. <laughs> I'm sorry. But there, there's such, there's so many great like moments of, of Ronan and Adam team up in here. And we talked about this in the last episode about how that was kind of the first instance of, of us seeing how well they worked together. And this book is just the, the Ronan and Adam team up book because almost every other scene they're together, they're working on some project together. And they're even like being jerks together. Like it's a very, in that scene where Gansey's signing Henry's thing, his little petition. petition. Democracy is a farce, Ronan said, and Adam smirked a private small thing that was inherently exclusionary. An expression, in fact, that he could have very well learned from Ronan. And like they're both being kind of douchey here, but like they're doing it in a way that's noticeably intimate and shared and united. And I... I love that for them. To me, the realization of uh, what Adam realizes about running at the barns that, you know, the effort that he put into dreaming this, that he would be so moved by this one infinitesimal difference in how the cow reacts to the dream thing is great. And then I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet. The fact that Ronan tells Adam his deepest, darkest secret, which is that he dropped Matthew. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about this and it, okay. it's all going to stem to my standing of the character of Declan. And I know that might be you're way overdue to meet Tasha then. Okay. <laughs> I, I am obsessed with that. De- Declan is my in call down the hockey's my fate. He's my yeah. number one, but I loved him from, from the Raven boys when he was a douchebag. Number one. Yeah. I, I, I have always loved Declan. 100%. I think in, Book two, it, you really see that he's just trying to protect his brothers. I think he's one of the most tragic figures in this entire universe. And he just, I want to wrap him up in a blanket and give him soup and give him like a hundred hours of therapy. I will put Declan and Noah on the same level for tragic mm-hmm. character arc. Oh, God. <laughs> I would like to just briefly mention though that Declan has not even featured in these chapters. So I'm proud of you both for taking us to Declan's conversation <laughs> <Anyway>. here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's six degrees i'll i'll get us there. I, know, I know i'm I'm always like declan is just beneath the surface here at but all times he is kind of mentioned Ansel, Ansel yeah he is when adam thinks every memory adam possessed of ronan and his younger brother reframed itself ronan's tireless devotion matthew's similarity to aurora a dream creature herself declan's eternal position as an outsider neither a dreamer nor a dream like my heart how can your heart not break he was no one's favorite. And when they go and they visit Aurora in Caveswater and they think someone notes, oh, Aurora said nothing to Declan because Declan wasn't here. Declan is as much part of this family as anyone else and has as much of a right to see their- I wonder if they even told him. I don't know. And it angers me because I don't think Ronan would have. No. Or maybe because <laughs> eventually- it's Declan who tells Ronan about Matthew right. off off 
screen or whatever off page off page yeah, yeah. so I, it, it's a lot what a revelation man and imagine being Declan knowing that like you are such an insufficient brother that he literally just made made another one like that and, 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 and Declan was like five years old and staying up all night to, I, I can't even talk about this right now <laughs> <laughs> well we'll get there it's it's fine it's yeah, fine that that's a uh, that's bonus episode stuff but uh yeah but yeah, so that's really, really, really good at them and Ronan stuff here. I just, we love to see it. I can't wait just for your hands just embedded on my brain and my heart. I think, so we talked about Bluesy. We talked about Pinch. Let's talk friendship stuff. I think there's a lot of really interesting French stuff. Again, we'll save that one big quote since it's like everyone's favorite quote here. But, you know, there's a lot of like Gansey worship, which we kind of hinted at. But I also want to talk briefly about Blue and Adam in this book. At the beginning, we get some really nice moments with them because Adam, Adam has, we were in his POV several times during this. He does not think once about the fact that he and Blue used to be a thing. He thinks about how he doesn't want to fight with her. But again, that as we talked about last week, he doesn't want to fight. His fighting, he's starting to realize, was misplaced. It's not about Blue herself and her re- rejection because she's rejecting him. It's about his his own issues with the idea of rejection in a general sense. So for mm-hmm. her, him to just very nicely be translating the Latin for her in the forest, they share some nice looks with each other. You know, they exchange a delighted look at one point, it says. I just, it's great because A, it again all goes back to that first, for the, the first book where they have the reading in at Fox Way. And Blue is jealous of the silent conversation that Adam and Gansey have. And now we get several moments. She has this look with with Adam. Adam and Ronan are having looks. She and Gansey are having looks. They're all starting, they're on that same wavelength now. But I also just love that they are getting along so well. But it also just really goes to show that Gansey and Blue's concern about Adam's reaction to this, I think, is misplaced. He it's is unfair, yeah. He's he's okay that it, as we'll talk about when we get there, it is the fact that they have kept this secret that ultimately is problematic, not mm-hmm. that it, the fact of it happening itself. I think so, they're both handling the breakup really maturely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they also were never really like dating much to begin with. I mean, if we're mm-hmm. going to be honest here. So anyway, I just, I like that part of it is really nice. But then just all more stuff with Gansey here. We'll read it too. This is one of my favorite quotes, but them bagging the cave's water to save Gansey in the cave just is a knife to my heart. Mm-hmm. I adore it. Um, and also kind of funny, the uh, Rona's going home yeah. <laughs> when she's trying to talk Gansey down from his panic attack. Oh, yeah. And then the Blue and Ronin is this is the first book where we're starting to really get it. And in that cave scene when Gansey goes down and then Adam goes down and Ronan didn't even hesitate. He just grabbed her and, and picked her up and held her really securely. And it's just, ah, I yeah. love them as friends. They are so similar. They have needed this, this friendship to to start happening for them. And I'm, and I, I'm so here for it. I think like blue is even shocked by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's like, I'll have to remember this. I'll have to remember this. And then later on towards the end of this section, when they can't find her yeah. and Gansey says something along the lines of like, I'll call Ronan and tell him he can go back home. And she's, she's like, Ronan is looking for me. Yeah, she's surprised that Ronan is out looking for her and thinks herself like, oh, in her pissy way of like, that would be sweet if I was actually in danger. But these like very sweet, like poignant moments of friendship between these two 
where they kind of almost seemed on like separate ends of this friend group is I love it. Yeah. I'm here for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the next chapter opens up with Ronan being like, I can't believe you're not dead in a ditch. You should be dead in a ditch. <laughs> oh, I love that. I also do. We didn't talk about it, but like Gamzee's anxiety in that moment too is just like very oh, sweet God. and endearing. Um, but I, so I love all that stuff. And then there's just so much, so much of the Ronan and Adam stuff here is based on this like mutual anxiety about Gamzee. First of all, they're both low-key jealous of Mallory for getting to spend like a year with with Gansey. I love that. And then they are talking, oh my God, when they go to the barns and Ronan talks about dreaming EpiPens and storing them all over Monmouth Manufacturing and Adam all gets all pig. Oh my God, do you think it'll work? And Ronan's like, I don't know. It's like one of those things you won't know until you need to know. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just... So that stuff is great. And then I think Adam puts it really well at some point too, um, just talking about the friendship stuff where he thinks about he's jealous of every combination of them that doesn't include him. So yeah. it doesn't matter if it's Blue and Ronin or Blue and Gansey or Gansey and Ronin. It is any combination that doesn't include him. And that just, they are all so wrapped up in each other that they can't, they you- can't bear it if it's, if, if they're not included in something. One of the things I've been thinking about too, though, as we've gone through this is I've been trying to like think about the fact that they don't remember Noah, like the Noah slips from time. <laughs> it makes me very upset, but like, I do think it's kind of telling that when they have these intense conversations about friendship, they, even now they don't include Noah in that. And obviously on the surface level, it's easy to say that a, they don't remember, they, they don't have that type of relationship with Noah because he's a ghost. He's already different than them. But I think it does kind of show when they're all in their own head, he's not there because he's already like their brains are kind of rewriting over his existence in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's hard. It's hard to remember him when he's not there. And it was like that scene where it, blue was looking at, at Noah and it was hard for her to remember what he looked like, even as she stared at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell the difference between him and the shadows underneath him. And mm-hmm. I think in that scene is the first scene where you really see him being almost erased. And that's also the same scene where he says, you don't know. Like, he's kind of alluding to what he is going to do to have this friend group, like, continue and survive and be created. So really, <sighs> they don't remember him, but it's the most tragic thing because he done started it. <laughs> right. And, and because that whole scene in the first book where he's writing murdered, murdered on the car. And then Ronan comes up and writes remembered. What is slap in the face then for, for him right. to actually not be remembered at all. It's just very upsetting. I'm sorry to I keep dragging us down this path. I think then the last like big couple of things I wanted to talk about, unless you guys have something else is like all these great side characters we get, which is what really makes this book so funny. Let's, I guess, start chronologically. We have Mallory who is, Kenzie's old British friend who comes over because he's I'm very excited to meet your late line and he's just... he's British turned up to like 11 yeah. and he's Kenzie just... you can't make tea for love or money so funny he has one of, has one of my favorite character descriptions too it uh, says there was something of a turtle in his visage and he had only one he had not only one chin but another waiting in line behind it his nose and ears appeared to be fashioned whimsically from rubber the round bags beneath his eyes perfectly mirrored his round brow lines his expression was befuddled <laughs> and his dog and i love how the dog is always capitalized in the book like that's his just the dog <laughs> it's 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 so great. He's he's so funny. What does he say to, 
to Blue, like, how small she is. Are you done growing? <laughs> and it's just great when we get more, like, of Blue height jokes from Jesse Ditley. But, like, he just provides so much humor then. His presence is just the source of a joke for so many of them. Like, when they see when he him, sees Noah under yeah. the pool table, he's all far be it for me to tell you how to how to live yeah. your life. But did you know there was somebody under your table? Yeah. But then, like, the first time they see him, oh, God, Ronan said under his breath, he's so old. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this scene later, like, where Adam and... Gansy are with him and they like drive him out to to Caves Water to like Lay Line or something. And uh Mallory says something about the the Romans and Gansy goes, Oh, I do, yeah, I do miss the Romans. <laughs> like he like glances at Adam. So he's just a really good source of levity. And I think it's nice because this book kind of serious things are starting to happen, but it's nice to have that that balance of levity. Uh and so then next we get the Green Mantles, who, as I said last week, are like the best villains. I'm actually also surprised that we are in episode what now four now of the Raven Cycle and we have not waxed poetic about how much we love Will Patton's fabulous audiobooks of this series. His narration is so good. I feel it's, like he just perfectly captures the mood and the atmosphere right. of the books. But in particular, of all the voices he does, his Piper <laughs> Green Piper. Mantle is so good. It's so funny. It's, it's uh, just the perfect amount of like disdain and boredom and narcissism and like yeah. social light. I don't I don't know. It's it's so funny. And Piper herself is just a funny character. Yeah. Both of them, the green mantles together as a couple, just hilarious. Yeah. There's so much good stuff there. I love this line. <laughs> She's like chopping like fruit when he comes home and she tossed the knife into the sink where it would remain until it died. I'm like, mm, I relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> It's I me. just I think Maggie does such a good job. It's such a, a crazy balancing act because how do you take these villains and make them really funny and kind of lovable, but also not diminish their threat at all? And she walks that line so perfectly here. I don't I don't understand that magic because they are, they're hilarious and I adore them, but they're also genuinely frightening. And not 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 once am I ever not convinced of their genuine real threat. Yeah, and I think that Mr. Gray does a great job of reminding everyone how much of a threat they are when when I think it's Ronan who just thinks, as he has every right to do, I could just kill him. And Mr. Gray has to remind him, look, he's he's alive. A monster. <laughs> for a reason. Yeah, yeah. He won't hurt you. He'll hurt everyone around you. And I think that's kind of the only thing that diffuses Ronan is not mm-hmm. the idea that he would get hurt, but that everyone else would get hurt. Yeah. Uh, Teja, you had a, a note that made me stop in my tracks and live in fear for all of my characters that I love oh, yeah. dearly when it comes to that scene. So I'll just read that that whole quote that he is telling Ronan to convince him not to attack Colin. He says, the spider dies, the web twitches, suddenly your accounts are wiped clean, your younger brother becomes an amputee, your older brother dies behind the wheel of a car in D.C. Mrs. Gansey's campaign immolates over fake scandalous, scandalous photos. Adam's scholarship vanishes. Blue loses an eye. And then in the Raven King, Blue nearly loses her eye. And uh, it kind of makes me feel like there's a little bit of prophecy here for the future because Adam has the Harvard scholarship. Um, Declan lives in D.C. And 
we're obviously all very concerned for Declan in the in the Call Down the Hawk series, the Dreamer trilogy. I mean, yeah. So I'm scared. Declan is Declan is really like number one on the top of my I think might die in this series. Yeah, list to my <laughs> dismay. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm really worried that this is going to be one of those things where you're, you're ticking off the boxes as they happen. Something's going to happen to Matthew. We're finally going to be getting Matthew POV chapters. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to, I mean, Adam gets in trouble at Harvard for what Ronan does with the dreaming. So it's all very scary. It's very scary. I don't like it. And it makes me very nervous. And I, it still is hard to think that that all potentially comes up in the discussion of a man whose quotes are things like this. Greenmantle had always liked the idea of being a mysterious hitman, but the, that career goal invariably paled in comparison with his enjoyment of going out on the town and having people admire his reputation and driving his Audi with its custom plates, parentheses, G-R-N-M-N-T-L, and going on cheese holidays in countries that put little hats over their vowels. <laughs> Like how, how it, it's just a, like you said it's a perfect balance right of striking also, fear yeah and I humor. love the way he he talks about and talks to Piper like their their relationship is just so funny to me like it's there's something of like a disdain there but also like he admires her so much he's just like oh yeah she like she walks away or something and he thinks she drifted toward the bedroom on her way to have a bath or take a nap or start a war and later he thinks he was so impressed with her ingenuity. He should not have been, really, because Piper was a very ingenious creature. It was just that she didn't normally use her powers for good. And when she did, they usually weren't pointed at him. It was just he hadn't thought she really liked him. <laughs> like when he like comes home and Mr. Gray is there like holding her hostage and he like drops his pants because he's just like, don't know how Piper's uh, mood's going to be today. I'm just going to be ready. Yeah, <laughs> okay. so he says like her lust was like a bear trap. Like solitary ready. Yeah, a solitary bear trap in the woods. So it's like, mm-hmm. you don't think you're going to get it, but you got to be aware in case like you're going to, to mm-hmm. come across it. Funny stuff. So yeah, and we don't get a lot of like the truly terrifying stuff about them in this part. So you really can just roll with the humor of them because they're ridiculous. And mm-hmm. I don't and know. He says something about like Piper showing her displeasure at the at moving to Henrietta by like driving her car into a sign or something. <laughs> I know he's like I would think that she didn't do that on purpose but Piper never does anything on accident you know without intention yeah she did that just (laughs) just to show him that she did not like it oh my god I love it and then uh our another character that we meet in this this book who is also a delight is Jesse Ditley um it's hard (laughs) Uh, he's so great you know, again, it's it's kind of like the Gansey stuff at the beginning of the very first book. Like these prophets, he tells you, like, there's prophecy, like, I'm gonna die in this cave. And also then you find out that his name is on the list from St. Mark's Eve. So it's just really hard. But he's such a, a another good source of levity here, his all caps way of speaking, just because he's like so big. Blue's like, is this man shouting at me? He's like, no, he's just so large that it like comes across like he's <laughs> shouting at me. But I think it's that's just lung capacity. Exactly. But then he also she thinks too about several times throughout the books about how like you know she doesn't trust people who like don't can't see Noah. And like he knows that she's there. <laughs> I think he says at one point something about how well you didn't say that you you saw him he's like well i didn't say i saw you but i was talking with you so like i obviously like he's just he's great yeah it's, a, it's another great voice that will Patton does too mm-hmm. Jesse <laughs> voice. it's 
delightful. He needs so pragmatic too. He's like, okay, fine. Go ahead. Clean my yard. And then yeah. the, the ant stuff is great too. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you're like one of the ants. I just love him. He's so, there's something so wholesome about him. Like he, he comes and brings her water and she's like, oh, thanks. You didn't have to do that. You know? And he gets all like shy and blustery. He's just like, yeah, yeah drink your water or whatever. He's just, He's so sweet. I love Jesse. I really like his character. I love his relationship with Blue. And I also love how the only person in the group that really understands why he won't just leave the house is Ronan, who when they're like, why wouldn't he just go as anyone would do if your family was cursed by something on a piece of land, just move. It's like any horror movie, just move out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But he doesn't and the only person that gets that is Ronan and I think he says what leave his family home yeah when he says it shittily and earnestly yeah and is that not the perfect way to describe Ronan (laughs) it's perfect it's Uh, Ronan in a nutshell so I just think that's very interesting and I also how he treats his own curse like it's an inevitability and that's kind of something Blue has been running away from the inevitability of her curse. And so the fact that these two characters, number one, meet and then get along, I just think it's interesting because he's he's accepted. I I will die in this cave as my father did, as my grandfather did, as his grandfather did. The cave will call to me and I will go in there and I will die. Yeah. And and blue is running away from that same inevitability, not with her death, but with her true love's death. Damn. Damn. It's good. Yeah. It's good stuff, Jesse Dilly. Um, I also want to just briefly point out when he gives her spaghettios after Noah's like freak out. But then I forget what she says, but she says something that's kind of rude and he just takes them and throws them away. I'm like, heck yeah, Jesse Dilly. Like put her in her place. Like it's great. Love to see it. So man, there's just a lot happens. <laughs> People say nothing happens when we just talked for a long time. So much good. Just and this is the first stuff. half of the book. Oh so. my god! Yeah, more is coming. Any other big things that we want to talk about before we wrap up here with some superlatives today, friends? I think I'm I'm all set. All right. So favorite quotes, Jenna. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go first here? Sure. You can read as our guest. You can read this one that I think is all of our favorite quotes. Really <laughs> short. Okay. You can just be friends with people you know. Orla said. I think it's crazy how you're in love with all those Raven boys. Orla wasn't wrong, of course, but what she didn't realize about Blue and her boys was that they were all in love with one another. She was no less obsessed with them than they were with her or one another, analyzing every conversation and gesture, drawing out every joke into a longer and longer running gag, spending each moment either with one another or thinking about when they next would be with one another. Blue was perfectly aware that it was possible to have a friendship that wasn't all-encompassing, that wasn't blinding, deafening, maddening, quickening. It was just now that she'd had this kind, she didn't want the other. Guys. <laughs> that is that is the Raven cycle. That is the books. I can't. All summed up. It's just, it's just a lot <laughs> for me to handle because I just, I love them so much. It's, that's the truth of these books. Like you said, it's just, it's perfect. Their friendship is so important and I love it. 
And I guess I'll go next because one of my favorite quotes also parlays directly into this, which is in chapter one, the cave scene. And we talked about it a little bit above, but Ronan and Adam pleading for Cave's water to save Gansey. Ronan kept going, his voice louder. No, do you hear me, Cave's water? You promised to keep me safe. Who are we to you? Nothing. If you let him die, that is not keeping me safe. Do you understand? If they die, I die too. Now Blue could hear the humming sound from the pit too. Adam spoke up, voice half muffled from the mud. I made a deal with you, Cave's water. I'm your hands and your eyes. What do you think I'll see if he dies? We oh, love, each, love other. each other so much. Yeah. Tejo, what do you have? This is just a silly little Ronan moment when Blue reveals about the the death list, essentially. He says, you guys have a death list, Ronan broke in. That is fucking dark. Am I on it? Some days I wish, Blue said. Love it. So good. Um, I have two more funny funny ones or funny to me ones. Uh, this is a no and Blue moment when they're driving to Jesse Ditley's and Blue has never really driven. And Noah's being so nice. He's like, it's just because you need to practice more. Again, he would be the best counselor. <sighs> Poor Noah. Um, <laughs> finally, he goes, though, we are going so slow, Noah said, craning his neck to observe the inevitable cue behind them. I think I just saw a tricycle pass. Just <laughs> <Which is> rude. <laughs> and then I like this when Adam and Ronan are at the barns and Ronan is like wandering amongst the dream cows and trying to find one to try his dream object on. And Adam is like, why are you looking for one? And Ronan goes, it works better if they seem more, I don't know, particular. If it looks like something I might have dreamt myself. It looks like a cow to Adam. So what is it about this one? Looks fucking friendly. Bovine the boy wizard. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> also, I think just that moment kind of says something about Ronan. That right, if it totally. looks like something, he would have dreamt himself. And it looks friendly. It just shows that Ronan, when given a choice, he always dreams about light. Right. And, and, I, and I, I meant to bring this up earlier and I didn't. I think it's a good illustration of like the surface level differences between Adam and Ronan and what Adam is learning about Ronan at that time. Like he thinks about how he would not have thought that Ronan would have put this much care and thought into something. And look how concentrated he is on this one thing. And there's a moment earlier where they get there and there's this, this plum tree and Ronan takes two plums from it and throws one to Adam. And Ronan eats it instantly, whereas Adam savors it. And it's kind of like you think that that's a huge difference between them. Adam is savoring something because he's used to like not knowing where his next meal might be coming from. He struggles for those types of things. Why he like saves that candy bar that Gansey brings when he comes to the apartment. And you would think that Ronan is all impulse, right? Quickly eat this, do this. But really the true Ronan is this Ronan who cares about what cow is going to be the best one for his dream experiment so he can make its pulse accelerate a fraction of a second. I just, oh, it's so, it's so good. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, whew. favorite character, Jenna. Favorite character is always will be Noah. I mean, yeah. the, the entire, especially in this book, like you can see what he's going through in order to save his friends and bring them together. And as much as it, pains me that they will not remember him i will remember him for everyone i'll do it i'll think about him noah will exist in my mind <laughs> always yeah. will be noah yeah noah is my favorite character in this book it's a good a really good Noah book and i have a lot of feelings about it as you all listened to and learned Tasha, i have a hard time because there's so many new characters that i like so much i i really love piper and mallory and jesse dilly 
and Colin Greenmantle as well. Uh, but I guess if I'm going for one of the mains, um, I think I'll go with Adam yeah. for the for the first half of this one. I this is let's just uh, we'll see. I'm gonna put it out there now. I mean, I've always thought my my thoughts have vacillated on who my favorite character of the series is, and I think it changes every time I read them because I like can't choose, and it's always between a lot of times Gansey and Ronan for different reasons. But like Adam might be the dark horse of this reread. We'll see. I don't know what a wealth of riches I have in terms of my choices. We'll see in a few episodes. All right. Favorite swoon worthy moment. We've kind of talked about mine a little bit, um, but it's that moment between, well, it's, it's the finger touching in the, in the pig. Yeah. That's it. But second favorite is probably that moment between blue and Gansey where she can't, say what's making her anxious and scared and and he knows and just says we'll find her and then before then when she's like thinking about his neck a lot like (laughs) that coupled with the emotional sincerity of it i'm here for it yeah it's great it's good stuff tasia i have the the for your hands the manibus the ronan leaving the cream for the ointment for adam's hands and also and just Adam thinking about how he was worthy of a crush. That whole scene. It's very good. That's great stuff. Yeah, mine is a toss-up between illicit hand-holding in the pig and, and the hand cream. It's a very hand-specific episode, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? This is where <laughs> we were going. Oh, man. I can't wait to read more. I'm so excited. This happened exactly with the Dream Thieves, where I, like, now I'm just very antsy to keep going, because there's good stuff in the back half. And we, we're we doing it. We're moving through here, guys. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank for, you. For crying with us about Noah, for crying with Tasha about Declan. I <laughs> I love Declan too, but like, I, I will say, I do think, I, I know this about you. I can't believe I didn't put it together. I know you have intense Declan feelings too. And I'm so glad that you guys had your brief moment today in a book in which, again, Declan Lynch does not appear on the page and <laughs> not even point. there <laughs> catch me crying in the club about Declan Lynch at all any and all times yeah. <laughs> yeah no thank you guys for having me this was so fun oh my goodness so next week friends we will continue with the the rest of blue lily lily blue and uh we will have another special guest with us at that time so we're really excited about that but in the meantime Tasia, where can people find you on the internet you can find me on twitter and instagram at ragey cakes uh, you can find me on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. You can find the podcast at Age on Instagram and Twitter. You can also shoot us an email at actyouagepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Any thoughts, theories, um, just anything really, it would be great to hear from you. And then if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast, that would be very helpful to us. And we would appreciate it very much. All right. See you next week, friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.